Hey folks, welcome. Welcome to the Friday edition of In the Company of Trees. Today is the solo pod, and this is, I think, I think we're about to do my favorite pod um, that I have ever done in the in the six-week history of this show. So get excited. Um, a lot of time when I look online, there's a lot of questions that go around in video form, you know, that people are making like TikToks or Instagrams about that are inherently absurd, and they'll be asked about the natural world, and, you know, as is the nature of the beast, they'll be 45 seconds in a, and they'll present as a very informed skit. And I've made a great many of these myself. But they might ask a question, you know, like, what are the top five most metal trees? Which is a very funny video going around this week, which I encourage you to watch. That's by Opalinsky Band, so you should watch that. And I got the idea, what would it be like if we could actually measure or argue for these things in long form? So today I'm going to do that for the first time, and I hope this will be an ongoing series. And today we're going to address what is the horniest tree? The horniest tree, okay? And in order to do this, in order to get an answer to this question, I felt like I had to kind of think about this in in an empirical sense. Because trees are biological creatures, which means that they do experience horn doggedness. So we are going to pursue that on today's episode, so get ready. But we're going to pursue it in a very calculated fashion. I had a lot of fun doing research for this episode, and I think you really like it a lot. I think in general, I just love asking absurd questions and getting an actual answer to them, to making a choice, to, to finding out what the actual answer to this absurd question might be. Cool, so we'll get to it right after the tree prayer. In the company of trees, I feel whole. In the company of trees, I feel home. With trees, I am tinglier. With trees, I am minglier. I raise my cup of water and pour it at your roots so you can drink your health all the way out through your shoots. May you grow your fill and help me to grow mine. Thank you, trees. Okay, the horniest tree. Wow. An important question. I think it's pretty important. Um, well, maybe it's not important, but I definitely want to know the answer to it, and I think I got a pretty good one. I think this is a perfect idea, because it's often stated that biology is the study of life, um, but I think a more accurate reading would be that biology is the study of horniness. Of course, horniness, the will to exist, the will to create offspring, vitality, a lot of the time they seem interchangeable to me. Biology, horniness, we should talk about this more. Let's do a little etymology first. Let's talk about the word horny. Also, I want to state that my language will be a little bit saltier in this episode than normal, so... Okay, the term horny. Hmm. What comes to mind for you? Well, I can tell you what comes to mind for me. Probably Austin Powers. And that kind of comedic nature of the word horny, that, that kind of gets in my way of understanding what it actually means. So, let's delve into the etymology really quick. Here is where I quote from the Oxford English Dictionary online, the famous OED, uh, for which I pay a subscription every year because it brings me untold amounts of pleasure, and I think you should do this too. Um, I'm not being paid by the Oxford English Dictionary, but oh my god. But don't you want to know that in 1398 the word horny was first used in the sentence bene in the farmis parte of the de trede de cornea horni by uh, J. Travisa in his translation of Bartholomew de Glanville's, um, let me see if I'm getting this right, De Proprietatabas Rerum. I mean, don't you want to know that? Obviously there, the context is not the context that we will be talking about in this episode. There, it's simply the first instance of the word, which means something related to a horn. So let's jump ahead to the modern meaning, 1785, um, which means, of course, sexually excited and is derived from horn. (laughs) Um, That appears as hornchulik, a temporary priapism, which, of course, is a boner. 
Um, that's from F. Grose's Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. Love that. 1785, we finally associate horn with how we understand the word horny to be. Now, 1889, that's when it finally comes about as an adjective. Horny, lecherous, in a state of sexual desire. That's from A. Berrer and C.G. Leland's Dictionary of Slang, Volume 1. None of this is relevant, no. But I thought the history of the word is important, and uh, I think we should know what we're talking about here, since we're trying to be precise in this episode of tree horniness. Anyway. And of course, I think it's important before we talk about what trees actually are horny, we have to talk about what trees are not horny. So what is not the horniest tree? Um, what does not count in this context? What are we not talking about? Well, one type of horn doggery that falls under this particular umbrella is trees that look like they are people doing it. Now, I think both you and I have probably seen a remarkable amount, if you were listening to this podcast, both you and I have seen a remarkable amount of examples of this over the past years on the internet. Right now, I'm going to do a, a simple Google search of the term horny tree. Okay. I am pressing enter as we speak. Excellent. Okay. Now I am looking at three different images. Okay, the first image I will describe to you, it, it looks like uh, two trees next to one another, presumably scotch pine. I'm looking at the bark here and the needles on the ground. I can't say for sure, uh, but everybody knows that the English are horny, and there are a lot of scotch pines there. So I'm going to say two scotch pines right next to each other. One of the trees uh, has, a, has a protruding secondary trunk resembling a human penis jutting into um, between two burls on the lower portion of the juxtaposed scotch pine. Um, and of course, what that conjures visually is the act of human coitus with uh, both uh, an exaggerated phallus and um, exaggerated buttocks as well, right? So this is an example of um, trees looking like they, they are people doing it with full-on private parts. Um, okay, so the second image uh, looks like a pine again. I, I couldn't say for sure what the species is, so species ambiguous. Now, this pine simply appears to have a long, curving lower branch, um, and of course, that, that again resembles a preposterously exaggerated phallus, uh, or human boner, rather, and I, I suppose the word woody would actually be appropriate here, and I'll just do one more, um, the third image is it's uh, that shows a large calloused branch scar on a tree. Uh, now that resembles a human vulva, so that's interesting. I can only assume that the, the horniness here is contained in the tree's anthropomorphic presentation of itself, um, as if to say, look at me, it is time. I am horny. But again, all of these trees are simply referencing human horniness, human sexual anticipation. So that's not terribly interesting to me. I guess it's kind of crazy to hear from me, but but anthropomorphism in this context, that's not going to have any place in today's convo. Maybe popping in and out here and there. But I really want to know what tree horniness is on their own terms. Oh, before we get onto the horniest tree, let's let's also talk about what doesn't make a tree horny, which is name alone. Now I'm guilty of this because I, I did play this for laughs in my book, Must Love Trees, an Unconventional Guide, because I called the shag bark hickory, I nicknamed it the tree who shags. Yes. And then, of course, I proceeded to make a lot of jokes about this tree, meeting up with a big leaf magnolia in the shed behind the bleachers and the, you know, the groundskeepers having to clean up all of his shaggy bark the next morning once they discovered the remnants of, of this coital scene. Uh, this is all a very imperfect metaphor, as you might imagine. 
but yeah, I, I have to mention that I am I am guilty of this as well. There's also a few trees with scientific names like you know Pinus rigida, like haha, yes, very 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 funny, rigid. I get it. I like jokes like the rest of us. But okay, we're gonna get serious now, um, because I would like to leave behind the world of of pubescent snickering and trapper caper doodles, and I want to have a discussion about tree horniness worthy of our favorite woody companions. So let's do it. Moving on. What is the horniest tree? Okay, so let's ask the question, what makes a tree horny? Right? So in order to answer this, let's examine the question in two senses. First off, what are the factors that activate a tree's state of desire? And also in the other sense, which is what qualifies a tree as horny? So, so first off, what are the factors that go toward achieving tree horniness? Well, I'm going to make a quick analogy here. Look at that. I'm breaking my own rules already. Anyway, if if our turn-ons, of course, if our most popular iconic turn-ons are things like Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore um, doing their pottery thing, uh, also perhaps eating some luxurious foods like chocolates, extremely sensual things, and uh, perhaps some heavy petting, um, and these all go toward increasing our testosterone or our estrogen in order to heighten our sexual arousal. If those are our favorite things that get us horny, then trees' favorite things are light and increasing temperature. That's their chocolates. That's their fantasy novels. And what these two things do, which typically coincide with spring in temperate environments, is auxin, the most powerful tree hormone. So that's responsible for the production of pistils, which are the female-coated part of the, the flowers and angiosperms. That means trees with flowers. And, uh, and it also goes toward building the stamen, which is the male-coated pollen-bearing part of the angiosperms. Also, auxins stimulate the creation of pollen itself. Now, in conifers, which are often wind-pollinated because they evolved before the advent of bugs and, and birds to do their bidding, the female part would be the seed cone, also known as a pine cone, but not a pine cone developed and fertilized and opened up and ready to have its seeds flutter down upon all creation. A pine cone, which is still small, still on the branch, and awaiting pollination. These lay in wait, usually on the upper part of a tree, for the pollen from the pollen cones of the conifers, which rest on the lower part of the tree. But auxin is the key here. That is the hormone that rises and builds all that horny anticipation and tissue. Auxin is the bouncing wow wow of trees. And of course, I do want to inject some sort of fair sexual politics into this. So sometimes trees will self-pollinate. The pollen pollinates its own cone or flower, and that's just how it goes. And, and in thinking about self-pollination, I think the human parallel here is, of course, self-pleasure, as far as I'm concerned. And, and as far as I'm concerned, this counts towards horniness, and that'll, that'll be honored here. So I'm not going to you know, disqualify a tree from being horny because it doesn't have a partner. If a tree has both male and female components on it, in which it is known as a monoecious, like most conifers, that kind of horniness is just as legitimate as those trees who are dioecious, where separate trees are coated male and female and possess only one set of sexual organs. Just want to be fair here and embrace a modern idea of sexuality. There I go with the anthropomorphism again. I'm really just coming up short here. Wow. So before we move on to a more empirical measurement of horniness, there's this amazing article, which actually came out last week, that I want to talk about. This is an article from the UK literary magazine, The Fence, and it's by Harriet Nix, and it's called Wood for the Trees. This is the kind of thing where you're doing research for 
like a project and you come across somebody that not only has done it before you, but has kind of done it better. Um, but the difference between Harriet's approach and my approach is Harriet was looking for more qualitative ideas of tree horniness. And in this episode, after I talk about her article, I'll be looking for more quantitative ideas of tree horniness. And I actually kind of think Nix's approach is a lot more fun. Anyway, so in her article, you know, what trees does she find horny and why does she think they're horny? Well, you know, she talks about length of catkins, which are bunches of tiny flowers, which of course we could equate length to a certain human organ. And in the case of hornbeams, she talks about, uh, well, this is what she writes exactly. When it comes to length, there is no way that it can compete with a Chinese relative introduced recently to the UK, the monkey tail hornbeam, Carpinus fangiana. So she engages in some really fun anthropomorphism there. But then she also emphasizes oaks, because oaks have this, this vital drive toward perpetuating their own species, as, as do all species, but they only frequently allow the most esoteric genes to flourish. And the way that they do this that Nick uh, describes that I didn't really know about is they abort most acorns that don't have the desired genetic information in favor of the ones that were pollinated with a pollen that has flown for many miles from a distant tree. So they love the idea of um, variation in their offspring. And and that horniness that that stretches over many, many miles, over vast landscapes, I love that. I think that's wonderful. So there is horn doggery as defined by longing. Really love that. Then, of course, she lists ginkgos and birches as heavy producers of pollen that are just kind of raring and ready to go at a moment's notice. Love this. And then she finishes off, and I really love <laughs> this is the best part. She finishes off her article with the same kind of literary flourish as the as the idea of longing and she pays homage to the the southern magnolia magnolia grandiflora and its desperate need to be pollinated every year by a beetle that hasn't existed for eons because it is extinct um and it's this evolutionary chasm that's that's filled by nothing but the magnolia's relentless horniness in opening its marvelous tapals that's kind of a cross between saples and petals don't have time to get into it right now um to a lover who will never come so to speak and uh this lover only exists as a ghost so magnolias are kind of horny for ghosts and as nick states and i quote hermaphroditic gothicism is undeniably hot and i have to agree there but the place that we have a lot of crossover in our approaches is a point that she makes in the middle with the where she talks about the overwhelming onslaught of pollen from ginkgos and birches um, and that's where we can answer the second sense of the question, what makes a tree horny? Or rather, what qualifies a tree as horny? And it, it would be great to get at something empirical here, you know, so we can really get some hard data. And the only way we can do that is by saying, how can we measure a tree's horniness in order to discover the tree with the greatest amount of it? So I think something that we can definitely emphasize here is that horniness, by definition, is a potentiality. Because... The consummation of horniness is no longer horniness, but satisfaction. I mean, ideally, right? So once you fulfill the horniness, it's gone. So in tree terms, you know, the fruit is the product of consummation. It's the product of fertilization. So measuring the fruit or fertilized and growing seeds of the plant, that would not be a measure of horniness. That would be a measure of satisfaction. Horniness lies in the putting off, the protracted, which is why I think Harriet Nix's nod to the magnolia was so perfect in that respect. Now, how to measure a tree's state of sexual desire, right? That's what we should think about next. Or even as the word lecherous implies, it's excessive or even 
offensive sexual desire. My God. Well, we can measure what we were talking about earlier, oxen, right? The growth hormone responsible for the growth of the sexual organs of the tree both the pollen and the flower. But here's the thing, oxen is also responsible for a lot of other stuff. And also, I don't know how you would even measure that. How could you isolate that? I feel like it's really hard to measure, you know, since amounts and concentrations vary over time in different parts of the plant. Also, I think that's out. Sorry, oxen. Okay, well then there's pollen. You and I know pollen, right? Pollen grains, that's a very definition of potential, right? Because it, it produces sperm. Increasing pollen amounts equals increasing horniness. I think we can agree on that. Uh, many of us have found ourselves enjoying a May evening on the on the coast of rural Maine when, you know, suddenly we're covered in the tree splooge of a, of a million eastern white pines. All of us have had this sensation, I suspect. So we could weigh the pollen or do a pollen count. But again, I'm trying to be a modern horn dog researcher here, and that view seems pretty male referential, does it not? So let's think about flowers. Flowers for flowering trees, or in, you know, conifers, those would be the seed cones, the female-coated seed cones, like the eastern white pines, pine cones, of course. And the gist with them, the female-coated sexual organs, is that they wait hornily, very hornily on a twig for its own pollen, or better yet, you know, another tree's pollen, to come rest on one of its ovules. So then that creates a pollen tube for the sperm to meet up with the egg, and that closes up for a while, and, um, you know, then they form some delicious fertilized pine nuts. But measuring them alone would, of course, ignore the eye-watering efforts of the pollen. So, in essence, I think our fairest bet would be to measure the combined mass of these two horniness indicators on a tree, both the male and female sexual organs, both male-coated pollen and female-coated flowers or cones. But check this out. I hit a snag in my research, and you guys aren't going to like this. So, Andrew B. Leslie states the following in his paper, Branching Habit and the Allocation of Reproductive Resources in Conifers. And, of course, if that title doesn't make you cream your shorts, I don't know what will. Anyway, so... And he says, quote, this study focuses on male reproductive effort because pollen cones are simple ephemeral structures consisting of an axis with microsporophylls bearing the pollen producing organs or pollen sacs that offer a direct measure of annual reproductive investment. In contrast, seed cones include additional investment in tissues that function in seed production and seed dispersal. So pollen really seems to be a measure of, of, of pure horniness, but unfortunately, um, seed cones seem to have a lot of other things in mind. Um, they're much more complex, as you can see. So we are regrettably going to have to stick with a measurement of male-coated pollen. That will be our empirical tool here to measure horn doggery of trees. So now, using that measurement, measurement of pollen, either by mass or by density or by simple amount, what do we find about which is the horniest tree on planet Earth? Well, unfortunately, not everybody has measured every single tree on Earth in terms of its pollen density or amount. So we're going to have to use a little bit of shorthand here to get some actual results. But let's start with some broad themes here. Trees that rely on wind to distribute their pollen, those are known as anemophilous trees, like uh, most conifers. Those have to be a lot hornier in terms of actual pollen production than those that have evolved to have bugs do the work for them, which all evolved later. Conifers evolved earlier, not nearly as early as the ginkgo, but earlier than flower-producing angiosperms. Now, because when they're doing wind pollination, understandably, it's going to be much more of a scattershot operation when you don't have a driver dropping people off to and fro. The driver in this respect being a butterfly and the people in this respect being pollen, which are sperm. People are sperm. Do you see how I'm getting a little stuck up with my metaphors today? Anyway, these anemophilous trees, as opposed to entomophilous trees, enta, bug, 
right? These anemophilous trees that are wind-pollinated can have pollen counts of up to 500 times that of insect-pollinated trees. Just way, way, way more. Way, way, way hornier. Also, let's do a really quick bid for standardization right now. I'm, I'm sure if we're going by absolute mass or absolute count, then our answer for horniest tree is probably just going to be in a great old, you know, giant sequoia like General Grant for sheer size, who probably has untold numbers of male pollen cones lurking in that libidinous crown of him. So let's aim to think of sexual potential as a, as a fraction of total mass or, um, or pollen count per. You know what I'm talking about. For example, in this respect, the Monterey cypress, known as Cupressus macrocarpa or Hesperosiparis macrocarpa. That's best known for being the conifer of dreamy surfers on the, on the central coast of California. Very moody tree, looks really great in the fog. Um, that tree has around 10 times the pollen production of other comparable cypresses like the Italian cypress. So that would be much more of an apples to apples comparison, which allows us to state with certainty that the Monterey cypress is one incorrigible horn dog of a tree. Anyway, but like, wow, like what are the nuts and bolts here? So a lot of you might be wondering, how does one figure out the amount of pollen grains per tree or per meter of canopy? Um, and that seems to be simple, really. It seems to be uh, a lot of people do it in a lot of different papers that I read. For example, Rafael Tormo Molina et al. simply count the pollen grains per anther. Those are one of the little reproductive organ antenna-looking things that pollen live on in a flower. Then they multiply that by the average amount of anthers per flower. Then they multiply that by the flowers per branch. Then the branches per tree. So pretty simple. And in this particular paper, the, the Molina et al. paper, they tested out various wind-pollinated trees and counted up their pollen. So these trees included oaks, maples, elms, pines, walnut, sycamore, poplar, willow, olive, and ash. So that's 10 super popular tree genuses. And from this study, we can pick out which one of those is the most horny tree. So let's do it. So when looking at this paper, here are the results. Okay, drum roll, please. I hope everybody is ready. Here we go. At the bottom, numbers 9 and 10 are equal parts flaccid and dry elm and walnut trees. A lamentable 800 million pollen grains per square meter of crown. Number seven and eight, poplars and pines alike, who come in around five trillion pollen grains per square meter, something like that, you know, kind of show me skin, but not too much. Their love language, I'd imagine, is kind of like loose-fitting clothing, um, khaki, perhaps. Now in the middle, number five and six, are the olives and the ashes. So these folks you might think are, you know, they're kind of up for a romp. But, uh, you know, maybe keep it to 15 minutes, something like that. So these guys average about 10 trillion pollen grains per square meter. And then just under the victor, the second tier here, three of them, a group of three tree cads and tree minxes, known as the maples, the willows, and the sycamores, genus Platonus. So they're honking in there around 20 million, oh, sorry, 20 trillion grains. Wow. So dendrophiliacs beware. Uh, dendrophiliacs are people who are sexually attracted to trees. Ugh, did the anthropomorphism again. Sorry, guys. Anyway, finally, the grand horn dog champion, the horniest tree in the land. What land? Let's just say all the land. The grand horn dog champion who has 50 trillion pollen grains. Oh, wait, I completely screwed this up. So, I, okay, let's go over this again. Number nine and 10, elm and walnut. 800 million pollen grains per square meter of ground uh, of crown number seven and eight poplars and pines five billion pollen grains numbers five and six the olives and the ash 10 billion and numbers 
three, four, and five, and numbers two, three, and four. There we go. Numbers two, three, and four. Um, the maples, willows, and sycamores, 20 billion grains. Okay, now, finally, number one, the grand horndog champion, the, the horndog in chief, is the oaks. The oaks in this particular study. And here, the tree in question was actually the Quercus rotundifolia, the home oak. That guy, he grows on the Iberian Peninsula, and he has 50 billion pollen grains per square meter of tree crown. Now, I'm saying he, of course, but I can also mean she. I can also mean they. Nothing really matters here. But we do know that this tree spends its days reading Aniasnin and doing Kegel exercises. And at night, they reach out for a lover, any lover, with their vast clouds of pollen grain desire. So thank you very much. Oh, but wait. In a paper entitled Pollen Production for 13 Urban North American Tree Species by Katz et al., which was published just in 2020, they have revealed that there is a tree whose pollen production is estimated to be roughly 10 times that of the home oak. You guys want to know what it is? You guys want to know the horniest tree is? Okay, hold on to your butts. Say hello to your new horny tree overlord, the white mulberry, Morris Alba. Wow, the white mulberry, the horniest tree. There it is. Okay, I'm going to go take a shower. Thank you.